Dialoguing on South Asia, we explore the lives of its people, hear their stories and the histories of the land, discover its beauty, and encounter its conflicts, complexities, and harmonies in a search for liberty, peace, and prosperity. Interacting with leaders, activists, academics, and common folk from the South Asian sphere about their work and their passions, their dreams and their life journeys, their immigrant experiences, advocacy efforts, religion, politics, and so much more with this, your host, journalist and author Peter Friedrich. Hand in hand, we meet and stand with South Asia. This is DOSA the show and um, we're here today with Mr. John Dial dialoguing on, on Dosa once more and Mr. Dial I'm glad to see you again uh, thank you so much for joining it's it's been a while uh, since you and I have had a chance to sit down and discuss issues how are you this evening fine we are actually in a state of lockdown because Mr. Modi our prime minister Mr. Narendra Modi is hosting the summit of the G20 and he is celebrating it almost as if uh, he's been crowned. That it is his, uh, what is it called in England? He's being coronated once again. I heard that that was a perspective that was offered um, actually just a few months yeah, back when this new Indian all, parliament was inaugurated. All the kings and presidents of the world will come and pay him obeisance. Obeisance, homage, kissing his feet. Yes, offering him gifts of jet planes and other things to torment his people with. Well, state of he's lockdown. Taking, he's taking it very, very seriously. I think several billion rupees have been spent decorating the city. And before that, the last month and a half, two months, he's had many summits on various issues in various towns and cities. And each one of them has been decked up. People have come to the globe and gone away. However, when we have tried to hold our summits on issues that concern the people, on hunger and poverty and targeted violence and hate campaigns and minimum wages and unemployment and all sorts of things that beset us. The health of children, for instance, education. We have had our summits broken up by the police. In three of them, I was a participant. We, 20, the people's 20, and minorities, 20, which was supposed to be this morning and uh, it was canceled under police orders. We, 20, was at the CPM building. It's a very safe place, a public place. All sorts of people come there. And this is and in Delhi? The police broke it up on the second day. Then we went virtual and passed the resolutions that we needed to. The other meeting, called the People's 20, had been in planning for three months. And it was at the Constitution Club. A member of parliament had signed us in. We had paid for the hall. On the second day, we were told that you cannot pass a declaration or a resolution that it is government's orders. And we were broken up 
at lunch. So again, we went virtual and passed the declaration. And the two declarations are the same declaration, which is we're telling Mr. Biden and everybody else, Mr. Putin and Mr. Xi and whoever comes to India, that whatever they do, whatever plans they have for the world, they must be put people first. They must put our welfare first, our health first, our environment first, our food, our jobs, our housing, our education, our human rights, and our freedom of faith first, before they plan any other large things, running the trillions of dollars and involving, I don't know what. Well, that's quite a strong message to be coming from people in India, from Indian citizens, as this G20 summit is about to occur, that all of these uh, renowned international leaders, they have these plans for for investment, for, for trade deals, and yet the Indians there in India, where uh, these leaders are coming to be received, are saying, well, what we want you to do is we want you to put the people of, of India first. Now, John, as um, you say, not, you're... Not, not only ahead. people from India, people from Nepal and from, and from the rest of the country, well, the subcontinent, the, the continent, and the world. There is there is unemployment globally. So as you're talking with me, John, uh, coming uh, uh, from Delhi in, as you described, a state of lockdown, I suppose that there may not be a better time uh, within that context for us to dig into as, as you're at your home, some uh, issues of, of your own background. So I know that uh, you're a lifelong journalist, you're an activist, you've been a lay leader in all different kinds of uh, Indian Christian organizations, the All India Christian Council, the United Christian Forum for Human Rights. Uh, you've uh, also been uh, now for over 20 years a full-time human rights advocate. Um, but before all of that, uh, if I'm not mistaken about your background, you actually dabbled in physics in, in university. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Um, um, you are originally from South India, but you've spent most of your life in Northern India. Yeah, but before that, before that, lest I forget and we wander into other territory, I meant lockdown and I mm. meant it literally. Mm. We're confined to our houses, all of New Delhi is out of bounds for us. The police have stopped all roads other than for the heads of state and government. So you can't leave the your house? I, I, I practically can't because the roads are blocked. The bridges across the river are blocked. And where will we go? We can't drive anywhere. So we have got a food and a fruit and a milk for three days and are sitting tight till the last president has left us. And then we can enjoy the city once again, everything is sealed. It was not so even at the height of uh, the coronavirus or in any other calamity anywhere. We are, we are used to calamities. We are used to Mrs. Gandhi suspending the constitution and declaring a state of emergency. And I am one of the documenters. The first book on it was written by me way back in 1976-77, long before many people alive today were born. So we know what emergencies are, what dictatorships are, but this exceeds any known experience of any living Indian. And the people older than me would have lived through colonial British rule. 
I have lived through Indira Gandhi. And that, that's what I mean. And we survived all that. When I came to the city in 1963, my father was in one of those uh, government services where you get to move around, dragging your family wherever you go. We're from the deep south, various strands mixed together. Because uh, from, are you from, from Tamil Nadu originally? No, 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 no. But in my ancestry, there would be some Tamil blood. There'd be a lot of Telugu blood. There'll be some Malayali bread, blood. And since I married a Malayali, my children are, are Malayalis. And, and uh, denominationally, uh, they're Syrian Christians, Syrian Catholics. Well, I, I studied physics uh, at uh, a Premier Institute since Stephen's College and uh, the Department of Physics and Astrophysics of the University of Delhi. But I don't think I had brains enough to be a scientist. So I chose out, did some further training and courses in journalism. And 69, I became a journalist at the bottomest rank. Over the next 30, 35 years, I climbed to be an editor-in-chief, in between a foreign correspondent in Europe, covered wars in Sri Lanka and the Middle East. Saw my own country. I can say I've been to every district, seen every 10 miles of India's very long borders and very long coastlines. I know this country, therefore, I know its people. And... Uh, I love them and therefore when I see any of them, children as we were talking about, or people whose human rights are crushed, labor, agriculture workers, industrial labor, it, it, it angers me. And uh, when I see people being persecuted for the faith, whether they're Sikhs or they're Muslims or they're Christians, it makes me angry because I understand that in a country where one particular group is persecuted, the second persecuted group just has to wait its turn. For surely, its turn will come, as it did in Hitler's time, for the Jew and the Gentile, and the labor and the communists. And here the Sikhs have been persecuted, the Muslims have been targeted for a very long time, and the Christians targeted for 20 years. In fact, uh, because I was in human rights and, and trying to understand what was happening to the Muslims, I could say I was the first man to discern the persecution of Christians because the data, the ethnography of the data changed. The names changed. It was no longer Muhammad. It was George and Joseph and Mary and John. And these names should not have been there because Muslims were being persecuted. So one knew that persecution had shifted to Christians. And then one sought to investigate why. I think it was in 1997, I published the first document on violence against Christians. I called it an unofficial white paper on violence against Christians. A white paper is a government document which gives you details of what is happening. It could be a white paper on the economy. It could be a white paper on Indo-Pakistan relations or Indo-US relations. It could be a white paper 
on Indochina. In fact, there was once. Or the troubles in the Punjab with the Sikhs during Mrs. Gandhi's time, for which she paid with her life. So since the government was not publishing data on violence against Christians, I thought I should do it. And we could show not only where the violence was, we could take a map of the violence and a map of India and superimpose it and discern the pat pattern. And the pattern has not changed. We could also discern violence against personnel, pastors and nuns and worshippers, violence against institutions, which would be educational institutions, hospitals, church buildings, and then violence against the aspect of freedom in which religion can prosper, freedom of expression, freedom of gathering, freedom of worship in a place, freedom to talk to somebody else, to convey to him the message of Christ for a Christian or the message of Krishna for a Hindu or whatever. But to be able to communicate what you feel about your religion to somebody else is the essence. It's not proselytizing, it is not converting, but it is sharing the good news as Christians call it. Sharing with other people what you think you know, what makes you happy, what that's just makes freedom you of thought, happy. freedom of speech. And, and and these were being constricted, these were being eroded, these were being compressed. Various pressures from the crowds, from the mobs, to the police, to the government, politically, to the laws. Things were changing. It was creeping and it was tectonic. Simultaneously, some of the larger legislative measures were creeping in. The measures were slow, but the instant measures of mob violence, of police coming with the mob, were, were instant, and, and, and those we could document. And uh, although we could not predict it, but we were, in a way, ready when mass violence took place in Karnaval, in Orissa. It's a, so it's I, I want to get to some of that, John, um, but um, uh, prefacing that and laying a little bit of groundwork, especially from your own life experience, you grew up with uh, parents who were Syrian Catholics. Uh, you grew up uh, primarily uh, in, in the north, I believe, where there's a much smaller population, but but Indian Christians uh, today, at least, uh, represent their very small religious minority of two to three percent, although that's anywhere from 30 to 45 million people uh, in the country. And um, when you were when you were raised uh, as a Christian uh, in India at that time in, in the 60s, in the 70s, uh, what was what was your experience like growing up as a Christian during that era? You know, I, I was a baby and a school child in Kashmir and Shimla, which which are adjoining Pakistan and China in a way. However, sometimes we were the only Christians, or so very few, and so very few Christians of my complexion, of my skin color. So you could say we were exotic, we were unique. We were not persecuted, but I suppose the faith wasn't allowed to prosper because Kashmir was Islamic dominated and very few, there were churches in Srinagar, but very few Christians, very few native Christians. Most of the Christians were like my family, coming in with the armored forces, coming in with the engineers, coming in with the scientists and the teachers. So we were 
migrants, transitory migrants, not even permanent migrants. And uh, see, later also we discovered that there was persecution of Christians in Kashmir by the Muslims. And in the hill states of what is now Himachal Pradesh and Uttarakhand on the China border by the Hindus. So there was latent persecution, which explains why even today, in absolute terms, by census records, Christians are far and few, much less than the national average, and certainly much less than the concentrations we have in Kerala and Bombay and Mizoram and Meghalaya and things of that sort. So the density was even more sparse then. And despite a lot of work by evangelical groups, continues to be sparse. Now, as uh, you said, uh, I mean, you made this switch from pursuing physics in university to decided that uh, journalism was a was a better fit. And at some point, uh, I do want to ask you about the about the emergency. But uh, you also said that um, you ended up serving as a foreign correspondent, even I've heard it uh, said a war correspondent in, in Europe, in Sri Lanka, you mentioned, I've heard uh, also possibly in the Middle East. Uh, can you I, tell I, me a little I, bit about that, where exactly you went and, and what you covered? I was, I was posted in London to cover London and Geneva for the Observer of Business and Politics. It was a paper that had been launched by the Ambani Group of Industries. And I was the first foreign correspondent. And uh, it was a unique opportunity to be able to cover, for instance, the Paraguay round of trade negotiations, what are now called TRIPS and TRIMS, the trade-related intellectual property rights which allow people to patent and allow rich nations to have uh, medicines priced so high that life-saving drugs are out of reach for the poor nations. It was also an opportunity to cover the reunification of Germany and to find out how difficult it is to integrate, but how good it is to be able to integrate. It was also an opportunity to see Europe, which had been torn by war at about the time that I was being born, reunited when I was a young man and a correspondent as a whole, as a political whole, as an economic whole. These are things that are unheard of, undreamt of in parts of Asia, which also has been torn apart by many wars, some very recent, and some a result of colonial conspiracies, if I may call it that, or colonial compulsions which they would like to call it. So that gives us, in a way, hope that it is not permanent. And it may or may not transcend generations. The hate, for instance, between India and Pakistan, born because the two countries were born as a result of a religious partition, and lots of bloodshed. Maybe five million Muslims were butchered in India, and five million Hindus and Sikhs were butchered in Pakistan. 
and tens of millions of people migrated from one country to another. It was possibly the largest exchange of populations ever witnessed. The massacre of the Jews by Hitler was the largest number of people killed. But this was, apart from the people killed, it was a huge number of population exchange. Not total, because there's still a few Hindus in Pakistan and a very large number of Muslims in India. So that way, partition failed to separate the people, but it created hate. All the refugees from Pakistan who came over to India, remember their mothers being raped, remember their grandmothers being killed, remember their uncles being butchered, some were had amputated hands. They remember the horrors. In fact, in Delhi, Mr. Modi has caused to be built a museum of partition to keep on refreshing memory for his own political use. But sometimes it is good to also remember their museums to in Auschwitz and in Tel Aviv. So museums also serve a purpose. But museums in India or anywhere should not serve to perpetuate hate, but to show us the horrors of hate. If you show the horrors of hate, then it's okay. But in Pakistan also, so these histories that are historical baggage to the two people create a state of calumny and hate. And Christianity then is collateral damage. A Hindu who from childhood has been taught to hate a Muslim will so easily switch targets and start hating a Christian when his masters tell him to. And the dog whistle says, we will pause on the Muslims and will begin on the Christians. Now, uh, just to add context for the sake of our listeners, uh, the partition of the, of the Indian subcontinent uh, occurred in 1947-48 when the subcontinent got its independence from the uh, British uh, colonizers. And what happened was that it was it was split. Pakistan uh, was created. The Republic of India was created. And as that occurred, uh, Pakistan was set aside as intended to be an area uh, primarily for Muslims. Uh, and India was uh, viewed as uh, primarily an area for for Hindus and, and, and others. And uh, there was a mass migration two way um with many Muslims from uh, now India going to now Pakistan and many Hindus and Christians and Sikhs um, from now Pakistan going to now India. And with this mass uh, two-way migration of peoples, there was, uh, as uh, uh, Mr. Dayal, you just mentioned, there was a mass violence um, killing on both sides that occurred uh, at that time. And the wounds the wounds still fester, but, but as you said, uh, hate is not a permanent. Hate does not remain forever. So um, you you were posted in London. You you spent some time, like you said, covering excuse me, covering issues like the reunification of Germany, uh, which must have been quite uh, and, quite uh, uh, historic Geneva, witness. The economic uh, <clears throat> capital of Europe, in a way, at least of, of money. And uh, earlier. When uh, the Middle East was in turmoil, I covered parts of it. I was not posted there for long periods, but I was in Beirut at a very critical time when Arafat 
was being evacuated from there. And uh, Israeli bombing and skirmishes, the Golan Heights, and all those things are not a very <clears throat> pleasant thing in world history. But for a journalist to be able to see it, understand it, report it, was a godsend. Not given to many journalists to do that. It's a, I suppose it's exciting also. Can't have bullets whizzing over you and not uh, be scared, not feel a little relieved when you discover you're still alive, which is what happened to us also in Sri Lanka. I covered that civil war in patches. I was the second. In, in, in which time period in Sri Lanka? when the civil war had begun. Which was which year? Sri Lanka is the south of India. Yes, sir. Uh, which, which, year, which year was that approximately? Sri Lanka is an island country at the southern tip of India in the Indian Ocean. Parts of it, the northern part, are Tamils, like Indian Tamils. And the southern part are Buddhist Sinhala, a different race, a different religion. And uh, the two people could not see eye to eye. The Tamils felt that they were being subjugated, they were being exploited, they were not getting their just deserts or their part of the development of the country, its rich resources. Even the allocation of rice was not equal. The language was not getting the respect it should. They were not getting representation in parliament to the extent they should. They were not getting jobs, which is always a big issue with youth. So there was violence between them. Last and that broke out in uh, 1983, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, to a very long time. Till after the people who had fueled it, Prabhakaran was killed. And then even now, really, in the of speaking, after peace was restored, I've been there a few times. There's a very deep wound. It will take some more time to heal. And Sri Lanka itself has, because of the drain on its energies in the civil war, has had an economic crisis. The fact that one family captured the government and ruled over it in a very, very self-centered manner, very corrupt manner, meant it's economically broke. And recently we have seen what has happened. And the result of that also, in a way, was the bombing of a church and the killing of a large number of Catholics, Christians. So I, I, I didn't, I was not there when the church was bombed. But when people were killed, when Colombo was being attacked and when Jaffna was being bombed, it was my, what should I say? Well, I was there. I can't say it was my good luck because it was bad luck for so many people who lost their lives, who suffered. But the, for the reporter, it's a job, you know. You're moved, but you also have to come out alive and report. Well, and for a journalist, for a reporter, certainly um, one witnesses so much human tragedy occurring, but at the same time, um, the, the job is to be there and to bear witness to it. 
and um, yeah, and also to cover issues of, of major historical significance. So one issue that I know you were in India to cover, uh, for instance, that was of great significance um, historically to the then rather new Republic of India and still uh, influences the country today was the, the emergency declared in 75 to 77. Um, and um, what was the emergency, uh, John? And, and can you describe that a little bit, what, what it was, uh, why it happened, and, and what your role was in covering it? Mrs. Indira Gandhi was a very nice democratic person. She believed in and fought elections. In her own election from Uttar Pradesh, she, by a bad luck, or she overlooked the fact that one of our election agents was a government servant. He was an employee of the government. And the Indian laws are very sharp and very clear. You cannot take government assistance in your own election. Government runs the elections. So our opponent challenged our election and he won. And the judge said, you have won by deceitful means, by corrupt practices, and you cannot enjoy the fruits of your corruption. And I'm putting aside your election. Mrs. Gandhi should possibly have taken it in grace, resigned for the election, and she would have won. But our advisors of the time said, you won parent square, you cannot concede or accede to or obey such a bad command, you suspend the constitution. One of our legal advisors, who was a big person in a party and a big political leader, later chief minister of the state of Bengal, was a chief legal advisor. And his advice was to suspend the constitution and, and, and see how she continues her governance. She suspended the constitution, postponed all elections, arrested all that she thought were against the rule, which included people in the Congress party, what were called Young Turks. Which was, which was her party. In the Congress party, yes. in the Indian National Congress of which Mrs. Gandhi was the leader as prime minister, and which her ancestors had worked for during the freedom struggle. Mahatma Gandhi was a member of that party. Jawaharlal Nehru was the first prime minister from that party. So anybody she thought was against her, she put in jail, including some of her own friends who were, she thought, were advising her wrongly or wanted her to resign and contest again. She arrested a lot of communists and a lot of right wing. She arrested many former princelings. We had a lot of kingdoms before independence. And she arrested a lot of activists, political young activists, students from JNU, from Delhi University, all over the country. And journalists too, as well, right? She arrested also journalists. 
they arrested some journalists, yes. The, particularly those journalists either totally arraigned against her or were also, while being journalists, they were also politically active. Like Mr. Kuldeep Nair was one. But most of the other journalists remained in office, but she imposed censorship and a very harsh one. You have to take permission before publishing anything. So every day, the newspaper assistant editor had to take all the news to the censor and he would say, you can use this, throw this, cut this, use this. But uh, journalists being journalists, uh, you also learned how to disobey. So any news item or editorial that the censor said you cannot use, you did not use it in obedience, but you did not fill up that gap. You left the gap as a gap. So you would, the reader would get a newspaper and when he was looking for some news, there'd be a long white strip or a broad white strip as the case may be. And he knew that something was being posted here, but Mrs. Gandhi had it removed. So, you know, way it also... Uh, you know, that, that, that tactic, if I may, that reminds me a lot of what we've heard um, seen today in Putin's Russia, where protesters are arrested for holding signs or, or were uh, when they were protesting the war in Ukraine last year. And then what they started doing in response was they began holding up just blank signs and they still got arrested in, in Russia, but their response was just to hold up a sign, a white sign, blank sign with no text on it. What else can man do? We invent ways to torment the dictator who's trying to torment us. I think it's only fair and may the best man win. The best man usually wins. Mrs. Gandhi eventually had to withdraw the emergency. But before she could withdraw it, many ugly laws were passed. Many ugly things were done in order to contain the population, particularly the population of Muslims. The government ordered large-scale sterilization, vasectomies for men, tubectomies for women. And when you set government officers to do such things and to give them targets, the officers also go berserk. So you could find 70-year-old men being sterilized and 16-year-old boys being sterilized. And all sorts of sadism took place. But the people really were close to exploding. Mrs. Gandhi also thought that before an explosion, she should retract. She called for elections do the emergency and lost resoundingly. In North India, her party got two seats. She herself lost. That was a shock. But the people of India had another shock. The party which won, the group which won the election, 
could not govern. They were very bad at governing the people. The emergency had put into jail, as I told you earlier, communists and the far right. And they came together to rule. And such a combination cannot rule. The far right also consisted of the RSS, this militant Hindu organization, which is patterned on the SS, which is patterned on the first form of militia that uh, Hitler and Mussolini could conjure, which wants India to be a Hindu country, which wants Muslims and Christians to be disenfranchised, to live as second-class citizens. They were in government and they perverted the system. They planted officers of their thinking into the police force. They planted their acolytes, their workers in journalism. And in due course, the people that they planted became editors and a large factor in disemboweling journalism over the years has been the infiltration of the media by the RSS and its increase. And today, if we call it the Godi media, if you find them singing praises of Mr. Modi and all his insidious policies, his hate campaigns, we call it the Godi media, the Modi media. They're the same people. So the Godi media, and for our listeners, uh, as I understand, that basically translates to like lapdog media, basically meaning media that are servants of of the authorities or of the regime, which is certainly what, uh, from my perspective, my understanding of journalism, the exact opposite of what journalism is supposed to be. Now, John, with um, this uh, emergency, it strikes me that there's a couple of lessons that one could take away from it. One is, uh, in the case of it being imposed by Mrs. Gandhi, that, uh, as you said, ultimately, um, she pushed and she pushed and she pushed so far, you can only push the people so far before they respond and you you begin to lose your grip on power. Finally, just before that happened, she was compelled, pressured to actually retract the emergency and hold elections. And then when she did do so, she lost the, those elections catastrophically. Now, another another um, thing that strikes me also about this is, as you've mentioned, there's this aspect where a lot of the people that were uh, being uh, persecuted or, or oppressed by, by the state during those couple of years of emergency included members of, of the far right, of the, of the Hindu nationalist uh, entities like the RSS. Uh, you just mentioned this paramilitary organization, which has taken inspiration from the original fascists in Europe. And as a result of them being oppressed during the emergency, uh, once the emergency was lifted, uh, they came together with this uh, communist coalition, which is the uh, exact opposite spectrum, and uh, formed this uh, untenable uh, alliance to create a government. But the RSS and, and their related groups along the way, around about, that would have been late 70s, early 90s, 
began to get the chance as a result of, of, of coming out of the emergency to start planting their people within these bureaucratic uh, systems, within the police, within within journalism, uh, you know, one can imagine probably at low levels to the point that you said as later today, uh, they've become become the editors. But I, I, so related to all of that, and as we move forward to the present day, I want to ask you a little bit um, about um, your entry into the world of activism, uh, because I understand that around about 2000, um, you uh, I don't know if it's appropriate to say hung up your hat as a journalist because there's so much, uh, uh, so many ways in which journalism and activism are interrelated. Uh, but you moved from being a full-time journalist to being a full-time activist. When when did you really begin um, that shift over towards activism? Begin dipping your toes in into that arena, and what prompted you to to um, foray into that arena? I still write, and if somebody would. Take me, I can write a report or editorial. I do have columns in some magazines. I write regularly, every day. So in a way, I've not ceased being a journalist. I've stopped working as a journalist for pay. I do journalism when I want to do it. I write when I want to write. I write on subjects that I want to write. I am not commanded by my editor to write on politics one day and potatoes the other day. So to that extent, I'm an independent journalist now. But as it says in the Bible, you can't serve two masters. And when you are a journalist, when you are critiquing the government, when you are defending the poor, you could do that by writing also. But sometimes, just sometimes, you have to stand with them. You have to understand and accept your own reality as a middle-class man, as a working person, as a religious minority, as a Christian. And you feel a sense of duty towards it. Let me say, I've never met a journalist who is without bias. When you see violence, when you see wars, even the Vietnam War eventually was a result of the reporting of the American press, the napalm, and all of that, the photographers, and the Pentagon Papers. And the Pentagon Papers. You feel committed to expose all that is inhuman, all that is false, all that seeks to make slaves out of people. Some manage to do that, some don't. For some, the necessity of earning a livelihood to bring up a family is high. I also have that compulsion. How my father left me nothing. I don't know, but I will not starve. And therefore, I thought I could afford 
to human rights full time. Not just any human rights, but freedom of faith. Reporting on, fighting for, campaigning for, conversing for the persecuted church, which is now my vocation, my life. I was the first Indian into it. I was the first Indian to depose before the United States International Religious Freedom Conference, Department of State, the United Nations, Geneva, for which uh, I was pilloried and uh, indicted in India. But uh, I've covered wars, so that was okay. Now, um, as I understand, one bef- uh, one of the one of the initial things you mentioned at the outset of our of our conversation, one of one of the initial things you worked on was around ninety seven, ninety eight. You you uh, and a team of other people initiated this this white paper, um, this kind of comprehensive report on persecution of, of Indian Christians. And one thing that I've heard you say in the past was that uh, you've described it as how. Uh, the violence against Christians in India between 1947 and 1997, a period of 50 years, um, was as much as the violence in one year between 97 and 98. Now that's a that's a pretty huge uh, leap uh, in in the escalation of persecution of of Indian Christians. Uh, uh, same in one year as happened over the previous 50 year period. What what changed around 97 98? What happened was that the BJP, which is the ruling party now, which is the political wing of uh, the RSS, was striving hard to come to power. The death of Rajni and the end of the Congress rule five years later had led to a situation where there was no major political leader. There was no major political party which could technically hold sway and win election. And the BJP was slowly emerging as a major party. And Mr. Atal Bihari Bajpai, who was the leader and the builder of uh, modern BJP and his colleague, Mr. Lal Krishna Adwani. They had been trying from the mid-90s, early 90s, I would say, to see how they could reach power. And they would change positions alternately. Sometimes Mr. Bajpayee would be president of the party. Sometimes Mr. Adwani would be the president. And they were trying to see how to get people to vote for them. And if you remember, 1990, Mr. Lal Krishna started a Ratyatra, a chariot journey through India, preaching the Hindu Rashtra, telling people that the time had come to throw away all remnants of colonialism, all remnants of the Congress, all remnants of secularism, all traces of Islamic rule and the hated Christians to liberate the Lord Rama from the Muslims who had captured him in a, in a mosque in Ayodhya 
in Uttar Pradesh. And this march to Ayodhya, wherever the chariot went, in its wake, it left thousands of violent incidents, hundreds of Muslims killed. And that act, that one journey from south to north, cleaved India into. It polarized India. It created the Hindu vote bank. Mr. Modi talks of the Muslim vote bank, but actually all political activity in the last 30 years has been to build a Hindu vote bank to consolidate a Hindu vote bank and to weaponize a Hindu vote bank. Mr. Atal Bihari Bajpayee and Mr. Adwani succeeded in that. The bloodshed in the wake of Ayodhya gave them the first Philip, so they had this core strength around which Mr. Bajpayee built a government in 1998. So towards the building of the violence, the collateral damage, the Christians also had become. Because once you have weaponized the Hindu vote bank, they will kill Muslims, they will kill Christians, they'll kill anybody that you want. And that is where there was a sudden leap in the persecution of Christians. And the Hindus loved it. The terror group of the sun loved it. To break a church, to beat up a nun, or to rape her, to beat up a Catholic priest in a cassock. They derived a certain amount of pleasure in it. And that's what I also want to dwell on some The violence inflicted, whether on Muslims or Christians, has a certain vicarious edge. It is not just a neat bullet through the back of the head. It is not execution that way. It is an act of terror, to terrorize the people, to shame them, to make them beg for mercy. But I, I don't think India's religious minorities would want to beg for mercy. But it is not a pleasant thing to see a burnt church or a Bible burnt or a cross broken. In my house, I have a small museum in one of my book racks where I've kept these burnt Bibles, these chalices, these crosses, these rosaries, which I picked up from across the country when I go to visit an act of violence. And till recently, before COVID caught with us, I used to go to every place where there was an act of violence. Uh -huh. I want to ask you about that. I want to ask you about that, John. Um, as you just mentioned, um, just laid out for us uh, around about the, the early 90s, 1990, uh, L.K. Advani, who, who later became in 1998 the deputy prime minister uh, of the BJP-led government, national government, when they first came to power. L.K. Advani led this Rath Yatra, this, this, this chariot journey across India uh, to stir up uh, sentiments in support of a Hindu Rashtra or a Hindu nation. Um, as I understand that I've seen pictures, um, Modi himself, who's now the Prime Minister of India, he was one of the organizers for that 1990 uh, Rath Yatra. In the wake of the of that uh, chariot journey led by Advani, as, as, as you mentioned, everywhere that he went, uh, uh, crisscrossing India, there was violence. There were there were fatalities. There were attacks on on, on Muslims. 
And that uh, had a lot to do with, as you said, stirring up, uh, I mean, that was primarily targeted at Muslims at the time, but stirring up uh, sentiments leading to collateral uh, or collateral targeting also uh, over the ensuing years of Indian Christians all the way to that period in 97, 98, when there was such a massive escalation, right, as the BJP first came to power. Now, the BJP was in power from 98 to uh, 2000 and four if, if yeah. i recall correctly um but uh in that in that time period in um in 2002 there was this violence in in gujarat when when modi uh who had helped organize that rath yatra all the way back in 1990 when modi had just recently become the chief minister of the state of gujarat there was this three-day period of violence uh, any uh, perhaps up to around 2,000 muslims men women and children were brutally killed RSS and BJP, et cetera, were all implicated in that violence. And we, we can talk about the specific details of that another time. But my understanding is, am I correct, John, that, that you actually went to Gujarat um, uh, after the fact to uh, see what had happened? I went to Gujarat because I was not stationed there. So I was not an eyewitness to the actual violence. But I went there when the smoke was still rising. We went to the villages, which had been totally cleansed of all Muslims. We saw the wells, which had been at one time filled with the bodies of Muslims. We met the survivors, almost every one of them, including the lady who was gang raped, whose child was killed, whose family was murdered. This is Bilkis Bano, I believe her name is. We met them in the refugee camps. And my group, we were actually chased out of there. I, Professor Shamsul Islam, his wife, two Muslims, uh, a Catholic father, we had to run for our lives from there. Because uh, a week or two weeks after the violence, there's still people. We went to a village. One of us was Swami Antivation. We had a superintendent of police with us. We went to a village where every Hindu had killed every Muslim neighbor. We went in like fools or like reporters or just wanted to know how can a neighbor kill a neighbor? We asked that question, how could you? It was a wrong question to ask. We were surrounded. And the police had to escort us out of that village. Eventually we left Gujarat and drove to Delhi, picking up a car from the bishop's house and, and, and drove to Delhi. The others stayed back for a while, but eventually they also had to do. Because and Gujarat today, 20 years later, still very polarized. Muslims cannot get a house on rent. Whether you are a professor, scientist, you have to go to the Muslim quarter to find a small room. You can buy a house elsewhere in Ahmedabad, but nobody is willing to sell you one. You can carry money by the sackful. You will not get a house. That is happening 
in Delhi today, by the way, Muslims, professors, scientists, journalists are not getting houses on rent. Others are not getting houses which they want to buy. So people are becoming so polarized. And Mr. Modi has gone out of the way. And his people who has protected to polarize the Hindus and the Muslims. And uh, the consequences, we're already paying for that. But it could explode any day. Now, after Gujarat, uh, that was one of the most egregious and large-scale incidents of anti-minority violence, um, certainly at least in terms of the numbers of dead that were left in, in the wake that had been seen in, in the Republic of India uh, since, its, since its founding, since its origins. But I know it's not the only place you've visited. Um, I, I, and again, you and I, we've discussed in the past the details of these incidents. But one thing I don't think I've touched on in our conversations before is how you personally have actually visited many of these locations. Now, um, prefacing this um, leading up to, to this one, and I think I, you know uh, what I'm referring to, but prefacing this, um, I have uh, here from you, uh, you you've said that... Um, over the years, and I guess this is over the past several decades, you've said there has always been a base level of about 200 cases of anti-Christian violence across the country every year, ranging from gang rape and murder to demolition of churches, beating up of pastors and clergy, preventing nuns from their work, and so on and so forth. However, uh, we saw in 2008 in the state of Odisha in, in, in eastern India, we saw that incident, uh, that, that that base level uh, escalate, spike massively. Uh, we saw 100 plus uh, Christians killed, hundreds of churches burned, tens of thousands of people displaced. Um, again, the violence uh, um, uh, blamed on uh, the RSS, the BJP and, and affiliated organizations. But once again, uh, you and a team of other activists um, uh, from multi-faith backgrounds, if I'm not mistaken, after the fact, after the, the smoke had, had, had begun to maybe clear a little bit, uh, you went there to, to Odisha to visit, to uh, witness, document. Uh, when did you go? What did you, who did you speak with? And what did you see there? Now, uh, you know, first of all, carnival violence, we could have had 70,000 people killed. They were not killed for a very simple reason. It's a very dense forest. And all these Christians live at the edge of the forest. So when the attacks took place, they just went deep into the forest. These are forests where tigers roam and elephants rule. So these are really, really dense forests. In the middle of, in the heart of India in a way, and a plateau a kilometer high. That is what saved them. The first violence took place on Christmas Eve of 2007. And it was, and on 27th, 26th, I was in Bhubaneswar. And that night, we drove to Andaman. I, two priests and a lawyer. Four of us in a jeep 
the police stopped us on one road. But we had a local person with us, one of the priests. So we retraced our steps, took another road. This is, by the way, an eight-hour trip. We retraced our way and entered Kandamal through another road. We saw the violence. You know, we were eyewitness. And when I say the RSS was behind it, it was the statement of the chief minister in the legislative assembly of Orissa, who said it was the Sangh Parivar. So our, our worst fears were confirmed. But we also discovered that at that time, the BJP was ruling the state in a joint government with Mr. Biju Patnaik's party, who was the chief minister. The home minister and many powerful ministers were BJP. The police people had been appointed by the BJP. They were loyal to the BJP. The collector, the district magistrate, stopped our relief. We had to go to the Supreme Court to say that relief should go. The second burst of violence began on 23rd, 24th, August, the next year, when this but man- that's, that's actually was, 15 years ago this last month. Yes, we just observed the 15th anniversary of Kandamal. We had to observe it virtually. But in Kandamal, every year, 5,000 to 15,000 people gather to observe and to mourn the dead, to observe and to celebrate their faith. So it's, it's, it happens. Elsewhere, we meet when we can pray. This year it was virtual. Last year also it was virtual. But perhaps we could say next year in Kandama. So that is something to aim at. But what, when you talk to the victims, you know, and later, the last five years, I have visited almost every Muslim family whose son or father or brother has been lynched by the same Sang, defending the cow, was lynched the Muslim on charges of eating beef or carrying beef or killing a cow. We have visited those families only to find that the police is complicit, the state is complicit, the politician is complicit. And this complicity is what I trace the, to Kadamal and to Gujarat. And this is what is now the norm, that complicity has been normalized under Mr. Narendra Modi's rule. 10 years of his rule has totally inured the police, the magistracy, the bureaucracy. They think their rule will never end. But there's another thing coming. Now, speaking of this issue of complicity, I mean, we've seen this uh, in the documentation 
in 2002 and 2008, and then routinely, as, as you've just mentioned, in many of these other incidents of, of uh, you could call it, uh, if you would, uh, more sporadic uh, violence around the country against not just Christians, but uh, especially against Muslims in these lynching incidents. When it comes to complicity, most recently uh, this year, um, one of the things that um, we've seen uh, perhaps most shockingly, egregiously, um, is up in the uh, northeast in the state of Manipur, where uh, violence broke out uh, on May 3rd of 2023. And there have been a lot of reports uh, coming out. I've spoken with members of uh, the targeted tribal Kukizomi community uh, there uh, who have uh, given me accounts of incidents where uh, police have been complicit in, in attacking um, there was this viral video that emerged of these two uh, Kukizomi women uh, who were being paraded by, by a mob of attackers, um, naked on camera, being sexually molested on camera, later gang raped off camera. And uh, in that case, uh, one of the women has, or both of them, uh, if I'm not mistaken, that they've testified that they actually ended up in the hands of the mob because they were first picked up by police and then handed by police over to the mob. Now, this violence is still ongoing for uh, so May, June, July, August, September, oh, just months. over just over four months. Over four months. I went to Gujarat. I, I went to Manipur also. And, and that's what I wanted to come to is, is you've, you've been uh, you've been here uh, on the ground in so many of these uh, places, Odisha, Kandamal Odisha. Gujarat, etc. You visited these families of these uh, Muslims uh, who've been lynched. I, I know you you'd gone to Manipur as well. Can you can you tell us about what you uh, did in Manipur, what you saw there? And also, uh, the violence is is still ongoing for four months. Violence is ongoing. Even yesterday, the women of the Maitis pushed back or tried to push back the Indian army which was separating them from the homeland of the... And just to preface, the, the, the Metes, they are the majority uh, Hindu, majority population uh, uh, community, the, which is attacking... Uh, the valley. Yes. The Maitis live in the valley. 80% of them are Hindus. 10% of them are Muslims. 10% of them are Christians. The Hindu Maitis have their eye on the rest of the state. The chief minister is one of them. The state police is almost entirely derived from the valley. So when these current passions were raised, with the might is demanding that they be allowed to enter with the cookies live to buy that land, to set up factories or whatever, plantations. And I just said, why not? When the flare-up took place, the police, instead of controlling them, opened up its armories where arms are kept, where the ammunition is kept, and just gave it away to these young men. And who now have not muskets, not pistols, they're brain guns, they're machine guns, they're submachine guns. They have mortars. They have become instantly an army. And they have been vicious. They have been vicious. So the cookies, all cookie villages, 
which was the place of wiped out. All the cookies had to run to the hills. In retaliation, whatever might is, they were in the hills were pushed back also. But for every one mighty cave, maybe three cookies were killed. The cookies have not been accused of rape. The Matis have been accused of rape of cookie women. And that's where it ends. The political solution is not decided. The chief minister is not acting. The minister of home of India is not acting. The prime minister has not been to the state. He's gallivanted all over the world. He has not been to Manipur. He has a monologue on TV every day. He has not spoken a word on Manipur. He did not address parliament on Manipur. He has not given an indication what is his, in his mind. How does he want to enter the solution? He has not given us a, a roadmap of a political solution. When the prime minister is silent, the low, lower minions will do what they will. And maybe that is the road plan, to allow one side to totally subjugate the other side. And then the deed is done and you can't undo it. Maybe that is the plan. But these are very expensive plans, expensive in human blood, in human misery, and a national loss. Soldiers are employed there. We can't take medicines to the cookies. When I and my colleague, Mr. Harshmandar, a former bureaucrat, when we went there, and there were three young doctors with us, we saw that in two and a half months, or nearly three months, the children were of the word of malnutrition for want of vitamins. They were just being given rice, boiled rice. The cookie refugees are living in church compounds, not in government compounds. No government comes there. No government rations come there. They are living on the charity of the church community. Of 90 or 100 such churches are hosting from 20 to 500 people. The Maithis are living in government refugee camps. That is the difference even for the injured. As for the dead, their bodies are rotting in hospital mortuaries in Imphal, the capital of money. The Maithis will not allow cookie bodies to be buried in their area. And they won't allow them to be taken out and buried elsewhere. They will not, any place in the valley, they don't want a cookie body to be buried. That is where I said, hate has been so weaponized as to turn an entire community into such tyrants. No human being is born a tyrant. You're taught to become one, and they have been taught to become one. Well, 
as you said, even the prime minister hasn't visited uh, yet. Uh, you yourself have gone there. Uh, the violence is still ongoing. I know that there's a complicated uh, situation. Uh, there's a lot uh, in it, which is uh, sparked off by this ethnic conflict, but um, it's being driven uh, by uh, a majority Hindu community who's got the backing of, a, of a, the BJP government at the state level and uh, silent sanction of the BJP at the national level. So from my perspective here on the other side of the world, uh, there does seem to be a large extent to which this uh, has a lot of uh, religious uh, motivation, a lot of uh, targeting of religious minorities wrapped up into the, the conflict. And um, now, as we begin to uh, move to a close, John, uh, and, and wrap up and, and come to a few of your uh, final thoughts, I have a few um, kind of uh, opinions I want to ask you uh, to, to share. But um, with what's happening um, there in India, um, I think in the last time you and I spoke was January of 2021 or January 2022. And um, in uh, that month, you described to me that the year 2021 had been a, a year of fear for Indian Christians. Um, in that context, you know, uh, looking back at, at what happened uh, two years previously, now two years in the future, what, if anything, has improved um, and has, has the situation uh, remained stagnant? Is it the same or worse? And, and, and I want to I want to tag I want to tag on to that, too. In the past, you've also um, described uh, compared the situation for Indian Christians to the situation for Chinese Christians, uh, suggesting uh, from my interpretation that just like China has its underground church, uh, that that may be a term that could be uh, applied to um, the situation of the church in India. Uh, what do you think of that? No, the underground church is a very large church in India. It consists of people who believe in Christ, but they cannot be seen in a church. They cannot afford to wear a cross on their neck or a cross on their house. They will lose their job. They will lose their scholarship because the Indian laws are such that if you come from one of the depressed classes, the former untouchables, the only way you can survive, the only way you can get or be given the affirmative action relief constitutionally ordained that you can get from the government is if on paper you remain a Hindu. So it's in fact, you can look at it two ways. It is a law that prevents an Indian Christian from confessing that he's an Indian Christian. It also prevents an Hindu Indian from changing his religion, from exercising his freedom of faith. He's stuck in the faith. I can't confess to the faith I've joined, and he can't join the faith that he wants to join. You understand the dilemma? So this is, some people look at it as a law prohibiting Christians from confessing to the faith. I also look at it as a law preventing a vast majority of Hindus from even dreaming of 
accepting Christ as their savior. They'll be punished ruthlessly. When you so criminalize you freedom of religion, it's, it cuts both ways. Yeah. As I said, they weaponize the law. So what can you do? You believe in Christ and you remain underground. And uh, in terms of, of that aspect of you describing 2021 as a, as a quote-unquote year of fear for Indian Christians, how do you feel about the situation today compared to then? Today, the situation is much worse, but it's good in a way. It's good in a way that Mr. Modi's term, his second term, expires next May. He has to have an election anywhere from December this year to April next year. The people are sick and tired of him. Unless something happens to the voting machines, unless he comes up with some trump card, he's going to lose. He's going to lose miserably. The opposition to him politically is building up. The anger against him publicly is building up. The economy is in tatters. Prices are high. Petroleum prices and it are very high. Taxation is very high. The GST, the billionaire pays the same GST as I do on a tube of toothpaste. For me, buying a toothpaste is a luxury. For Mr. Ambali, the number two richest man in India and the fifth richest in the world, he can buy a toothpaste every millisecond. He can buy a jet every hour. These are the funny ways in which monopoly capital, four or five friends, mostly two, Mr. Adani and Mr. Ambali, have benefited. The rest of us Indians, if not on the verge of starvation, are on the verge, certainly, of being totally fed up with the regime. Well, um, bringing this as we wrap up, uh, round towards, uh, you know, I'm, of course, here in the U.S., um, been living in the U.S. my whole life. And um, recently, uh, Modi, the, the PM of, of India, uh, got the well, red I, carpet. I, 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 must, I must interrupt you to congratulate yes. you on the wonderful work you are doing in America. And also through you to con congratulate the Hindus for human rights and people of that group who are really doing the, giving a great fight to the friends of Mr. Modi in America, who are giving a good fight to those who are entrenched in caste politics, who employ only people of their own caste, the upper castes. I congratulate you and I congratulate all these groups. You give us such strength from such a distance. Thank you, John. And especially, I would amplify that. Congratulations to Hindus for Human Rights, because I know I've seen personally, uh, borne witness to how difficult it can be to be a Hindu in this struggle, raising the voice for human dignity, for human freedoms, for civil liberties, uh, and against this Hindu nationalist movement. And Hindus for Human Rights in particular have been subject to a wave of really vicious attacks. And I hats off to them for their courage, uh, their principle as they continue to stand strong. And they were they were there, they were some of the major uh, players 
there in Washington, D.C. In, in June uh, when Modi um, got the red carpet rolled out for him by the U.S. government. And this is actually this happened under the Biden administration, which is Democratic. But it, this has not been a partisan uh, treatment of of Modi over the years. Uh, just when we had the Trump administration, uh, Republican, uh, Modi got generally the same reception, the same embrace by Trump as he's now getting by Biden. Although um, progressively, it does seem to be a closer and closer embrace of Modi. So as an Indian, John, what is it? How do you how does that make you feel uh, when you see, you know, my government um, uh, behaving that way towards Modi in context of of who Modi is and, and the kind of uh, ideology that he he represents and is pushing. You know, my answer is the same, which I gave to the United States Commission on International Religious Freedom back in 2001 or something. It remains the same. I will, as an Indian, never ask for sanctions against India. I do not want whatever things the getting that it should be stopped. I would not like visas to be stopped. I would not like jobs and education and food and whatever else, medicines to be stopped. But I do want anybody who sells arms to India, who sells, who does big business with it, including President Biden, name and shape, tell Mr. Modi he cannot he cannot abuse his people as he's doing and still have respect of the leaders of the world. He's bringing shame to India. And any head of state, for protocol reasons, for your own politics, you're dealing with the country of India. But to the man, whenever you have an opportunity, tell him. He is doing wrong, and history will never forgive him. Well, name and shame, I, I like that. And speaking as, as an American, you know, I've one of the issues that I've been passionate about uh, in terms of U.S. politics for, for decades now is opposition to U.S. waged foreign wars. Um, and within that context, uh, connected so much to that is, 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 is the sanctions that the U.S. imposes on countries around the world, which typically do nothing but actually harm the common person. They don't actually impact the regime so much. I've spoken with some people who support this idea of, of, of um, BDS type of uh, type of approach, a boycott, divest and sanction type of approach towards uh, India and in response to what's happening there with human rights under the under the Modi administration, Modi regime. But uh, that uh, I've long uh, uh, opposed. Um, I, I think that that's the absolutely the wrong uh, tactic. Uh, instead, name and shame, name and shame. And uh, I uh, certainly attempt to do that uh, with whatever voice I have, but that needs to be done increasingly from uh, places of power, of political power, from, from the U.S. Congress, I, from the presidency. I, I love the way you chase these Indian Americans who want political positions there. I like the way you chase them and you ask them, and even you ask white American politicians if they are taking funds from sources who have blood on their hands. I, I, I just love it. I think 
that needs to be pursued in a big, vigorous way. Question, question, question everything and everyone, especially anybody that has any kind of uh, parent association with this movement, with uh, the Hindu nationalist movement and its supporters here in, in the U.S. And last, uh, almost last question, John, I wanted to ask, uh, I saw an article you wrote um, in the wake of the uh, visit by Modi uh, to D.C. in June. And in it, um, you talked, uh, and I'm going to quote you, you, you talked about how his visit had evoked limited protests in Washington, D.C. by Hindus for Human Rights, the Indian American Muslim Council, the Federation of Indian Christian Organizations of North America. These protests were overwhelmed by crowds of Modi supporters who chanted before the accompanying Indian media, Modi is India. And I want to say, first, I absolutely agree with that. They were tragically limited protests. And I speak, I've been, I've protested Modi in California in 2015, in, in Houston, Texas in 2019. And I was there protesting him at these protests in Washington, D.C. Unfortunately, from my perspective, they, they were some of the most anemic protests against Modi that I've ever seen. Um, I, I don't know why. And I wondered if you had insight into that. Are people just well, here, just tired of protesting? I have deep insights. I have deep insights, and not all of them are present. I know who are the people supporting Mr. Modi. I know what is their game. But it is when I find the Indian Muslim and the Indian Christian, first-generation people who went there to scout for a living. They didn't go there as nuclear scientists. Most of the Christians went there as husbands of nurses who were given jobs, as technicians. Some went as doctors. But most of them were lower middle class, middle class, and rebelling, protest is not part of their education. They were happy just being survivors. And here we are asking them to cry for us, to fight for us. They, many of them left before the violence started in India. So they've not felt it. Many of them come from Kerala, where violence does not take place. And that means the people there, unless they are emotionally, by training, by education, by conscience moved, they will not come in large numbers. People have to forsake, they have to give up two days work. It's a small donation. For me to give up a job was at that time small. Now it is big. I'm 75 years old now and I need money. And I, whatever is there, you know, I hope it lasts as long as I live. But the point is, unless you're willing to be sacrificed, please don't pretend that you're fighting for us. Then just say that I'm praying. Say, but say that openly. It gives me great courage. If I had a million Indians, and there would be a million Christians there, if one Sunday all of them prayed, that would be world news. A million Indian Christians prayed in the churches in the United States of America for the plight of the brothers and sisters in India. So pray. It's not going to cost you anything. You're not going to go to jail. You're not going to lose money. But do it in synchronization. Do it as a gesture. Don't do it silently. Just put a plaque uh, on your wall. I love India. I love Indian Christians. Stop killing them. Put it on a 10,000 walls. Do nothing. You don't even have to go out. 
you're losing no wages. Just put up a plaque. Change your, whatever it is called, the background of your mugshot on, on, on TV, on WhatsApp. Do something so that people know in India that there are people in America who love them. It is good to know that this person with a German name and a white skin loves us. But to see people of my own skin and my own accent show that they care enough for me to sacrifice a little for them. Well, and especially for uh, Indian Christians, I think that's an important uh, perspective and, and understanding is that so many of them come, come over, they've gone through this difficult immigrant journey, and, and now the expectation is, especially in context of all of these other factors where they might have come from Kerala, where there's no persecution, or they might not, they might have come after the persecution in India started, they haven't personally experienced it. And now the ask is for them to, to hit the streets and, and come activists, but if that's that that's a big sacrifice especially for somebody who's who's an immigrant and who has no experience with something like that at least you can pray now i know uh, outside of the indian american community uh, within the broader american church i'm i'm an anglican and within the anglican church we have a written liturgy that guides uh, as it does in the roman catholic church that guides the service there's a section uh, that's known as prayers uh, of the people and which has a specific uh, prayer for the persecuted church. I know that uh, I recently moved, but the, the church that uh, I, I, um, I uh, dipped my toes into, into the Anglican uh, faith uh, and was there for years, my, my priest there, um, he has incorporated into that section a, we pray for the persecuted church and especially for the church in India um, oh, addition. However, unfortunately, uh, my church uh, is one of the very few uh, that uh, I know, which is um, uh, praying for um, India, for and especially for persecuted Christians in India. And one of the reasons that they're doing so is because they're aware of the persecution against Christians in India. Most of the churches, I've tried reaching out to churches here in America. I've tried talking with Protestants, Catholics, etc., priests, pastors. Um, and uh, even even uh, Mormons and, and and other other groups, and uh, there's been uh, very little awareness. And when the awareness is planted, very little eagerness to take action. Um, uh, what do you think we can do to get them involved, John? If anything, oh, how does one prick a brother's conscience? I think we are also a miss. We have these sporadic activities. I think we must have a bigger office, we must strengthen your office, we must strengthen your office, but we must have a research and communication office in Washington, D.C. And if possible, people in every state capital who keep on churning information, documents, emails, paper, to every legislator, to every pastor, and we'll see what we can do. I wish I were young enough. I would have volunteered. But if there's somebody, I would be so happy to pray for him and to support him from India to the extent I can. Well, you've done so much in your life, John, and uh, it's, uh, now as you continue to do what you can and you're still doing uh, so much, 
I uh, believe uh, you would probably agree with this. It's necessary for uh, newer generations to begin picking up and carrying on the torch. And in that context, well, you know, there's always a glimmer of hope. Uh, what is your hope for the future as far as whether it's whether it's uh, uh, India and and uh, ends to the human rights violations there, a, a reestablishment of of religious freedom, of freedom of expression, and, and, and this sort of thing. And and last question is uh, in context of all of that, what do you hope your own legacy will be? Here lies John at peace with himself. I have more hopes in the non-Christian world in India for raising an entire generation of activists who are there because their conscience has said so. Some of them have left great jobs, some not so great jobs. They are living hand to mouth, but they're active. They are arrested, they go to jail, they're active. The Christian church has a few, I can count them on the fingers of the two hands, but most of them are self-centered. Many of them are just waiting for a chance to migrate. Many of them are praying warriors, but not willing to hit the street. I think unless we have boots on the ground, unless we have activists who go and document, unless we have activists who write, unless we have activists who proceed to the court and are willing to give evidence, and unless we have people who can collect money from their own people, because now we can't even get money from outside, who can raise resources. I think we are in for a pretty hot spot. But I am happy that there are people I can count on. Maybe one in each state, maybe two. But the others are in for glory or in for being present at a presidential dinner whatever, but would not be there on the road, would not be there where Mr. Modi can see them and order their arrest. Well, especially in context of anybody um, in this arena who is working on these issues, who's a Christian, uh, whether they're Indian or outside of India, um, certainly from my perspective, as you talked about, what uh, incredible thing it would be if, if there was a focused million people, churches all around the world, churches all around America, praying all the same time. If they're doing that, though, don't do it silently. Let people know that you're, that you're doing it. Because my experience in the past has been feedback from Indian Christians is that when they know that there's somebody speaking up for them, especially with them being in such a hot spot, tough situation in India, oftentimes being unable to uh, raise their voices, let alone let alone um, worship freely. It's such an encouragement for them uh, to continue going strong when they see that that prayer is occurring for them, uh, when they see that there's other people outside who are pleading their cause. However, uh, you know, you mentioned these prayer warriors, you know, and this is uh, to any listeners uh, that might be, as I said, of Christian faith from any background, is that uh, I recall that faith without works is dead, that yes, we pray, but our prayer must drive us into some kind of an action. 
And so whether that's uh, taking the message further to the streets uh, or to the government or to other churches or to uh, other neighbors and so on and so forth. Well, John, I, I want to thank you so much for your insights, uh, for your opinions, for offering uh, to discuss um, this fascinating life story that you've had uh, starting out studying physics um, as a university student and then witnessing these momentous events uh, all throughout uh, the uh, decades of uh, the latter half of the 20th century, now now a quarter of the way into the 21st. And um, any final thoughts? It's good to be alive. I wish those who died in targeted violence were alive too. Amen to that, and we will leave it at that. Thank you, John. Stay well. Thank you for tuning in. If you liked what you heard, please remember to subscribe and follow for more to come as we look forward to dialoguing once again on DOSA.